Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. This took place in the farming town of Salinas, California. In January of 1998, a young couple, last name of Carvajal, decides that they're going to do some upgrades in their home. And they go into the crawl space of the house just to check it out. And they come across a shoe. Eric Carvajal, he's he's just thinking it's a shoe. It's dark there. Eric and Diana really don't think much of it. Then. A few days later, Diana's sister stops by and they start talking about what was found in the crawl space. And one made a bet with the other for $20 just to, you know, dare to go down there and see what's really under that space. So she crawled under to take a look and she sees something sticking up out of the ground. It's very little light in there. Diana, she crawls towards it and she does find that shoe that her husband had found but this time she realizes there's something attached to it. She moves it and that shoe is attached to a leg bone. She crawled right back out because she realizes this is not a discarded shoe. There is something going on. So they call the police immediately realizing there's only one reason something like this would be in a crawl space. A detective responds immediately and they explain to him that there's what appears to be a shoe attached to a leg bone in the crawl space of the house. The detective goes down there and he's kind of thinking maybe it's a mistake and they just didn't know what they're looking at and he's not really believing it's going to be a body. So he goes down there with a flashlight. He's stunned when he actually illuminates a boot and then a bone and there was no denying. They realize it's the real deal. He realizes that they need to confirm if this is indeed a body. They get a crew out there right away. So they have to pull the entire kitchen floor out. Uh, In other words, they realize that they might need to preserve what might be a crime scene, regardless of maybe how much time has gone by. A forensic anthropologist is dispatched, goes in there, and uh, she starts to feather off all the soil, layer by layer, just to gather any potential evidence, bone fragments, and it took quite some time to do this. And until finally the entire skeleton was exposed and it was an entire skeleton. While the skeleton was lying on its back, it seemed all they could find as far as other evidence is the tattered pair of pants and of course the two boots, one of them which was 
originally what was seen, the detective, and he's realized that basically the occupants had been walking over what might have been a potential murder scene for several years. The forensic anthropologist sees that there's a hole on the right side of the skull, something that's consistent with a gunshot wound. This is the first indicator that this person died some type of violence. They bring up the bones and uh, they put it on a tarp and of course more and more photographs are taken. So find what they were hoping for which was a bullet. And this of course it's easier to match it hopefully to a gun and find out who did it. Now what's really strange is a few days before the young couple there receive a very weird letter basically asking if the person that was missing if they'd come home. They of course are wondering what is this about because they had no idea. So the police look at their missing person reports just to see if there's anything that corresponds to that address. They find one in 1984, but at, at that point, it was something that was issued for what was thought to be a runaway. And his name was Christopher Allen DeNoyer. Issued back in 1984, 14 years before. And now the police are putting two and two together. If this possibly was Christopher, if the skeleton was his, because perhaps he hadn't run away after all. They look at the original case file. They find that he walked away from the house, supposedly, with no clothes. In other words, it didn't. he didn't behave when he left, like someone that was running away. Someone that had taken whatever he had just to live on the streets or wherever he was going. And again, the police are asking, how did he get into that crawl space under the kitchen? And because it's obvious from this point that they're dealing with a homicide. Jackson and Dale Villarta are the ones living there back in 1984. This was a blended family, and uh, they each had children from previous marriages. They both had full-time jobs. They had a full-time schedule. Part of this household is Christopher. For lack of a better word, it was kind of a chaotic household. And one day, his mother decides to go on a, a little day trip, road trip, with two of the kids, leaves uh, her sister-in-law with her husband to help maneuver the rest of the kids. And that day that she's gone, Christopher's girlfriend shows up on his dad's doorstep and asking if she, if he had seen uh, his son Christopher because it seemed like he had stood her up for a date and he has no idea what's going on. He could tell his girlfriend's upset because she said he just didn't call, didn't show up. So his dad goes to see a friend of his named Robert to find out, hey, do you know where Christopher's at? Have you heard was he going anywhere? What's he doing? I just got a visit from his girlfriend who's very upset at him. Robert says, yeah, he's talked about running away. He can't stand the rules. His father's thinking, wow, he really did it. He ran away. Chris's father lives two hours south from Salinas. He eventually gets a call from Chris's mother wanting to find out if maybe he went over to where he's at. And he says, no, nobody had heard anything. That was the most mysterious thing. The hours go by. And there's no signs of Chris. Finally, they call the police and they issue a missing persons report. Of course, they're looking at it mostly as a runaway. The only thing strange, of course, he had left no message. And when the police go, they seem a household that's normal. Nothing's out of place. The mother saying, I can't figure out why he would disappear, not even leave a message for his girlfriend. What about money? And also, as far as she knew, he was in love with his girlfriend. Where did he go? At this point, there's even some there that are wondering if it is true that he did run away after all. And the truth was, he had a cheerful personality. He was a nice guy. He's uh, well-liked by his peers. He was, didn't, wasn't known to have any enemies, nobody that was out to get him. He had a circle of friends, a large circle of friends. He was well-known in the neighborhood. 
He would ride his bike around with his friends and he uh, played football in high school. And so the 16 year old, he's a football player in high school. He's in love with his girlfriend, has his pets. In other words, even though he might have griped about the rules at home, there's a lot of things that have an emotional tie for him to this place, which is why everybody's wondering why he would leave it all behind and not even leave a message or anything to let, let's say, his girlfriend know where he would be at. And strangely enough, the day before he disappeared, his dogs, which he was very much a good pet owner, died because they had gotten into some rat poison. One day, they receive a telegram, supposedly from Chris. Now, this telegram was received the week he went missing, and it's supposedly from him. He's saying, I'm running away, don't worry about me, I'm going to Los Angeles that he's fine. He puts a PSC when I'm in the NFL. Of course, everybody is still thinking this is weird because there was something that was off. Just the wording in it about him being in the NFL, all these things just didn't sound like him. And in truth, it was because he liked to play football in high school, but he really didn't ever state that he wanted to be part of the NFL or go on to a to play professionally. And he says in the telegram that Jackson, his stepdad is right, which again seems to be something very unusual for him to include in a telegram. Those things just made the family, especially his dad and his stepmother, believe that that wasn't really him who had sent that uh, that telegram. His mother turns around, shows the police a telegram, and of course they confirm it then as being a runaway. Case is closed. They look at it as a normal high school kid having troubles at home, doesn't like the rules, has run away off to LA, and to, to confirm it, they get a telegram. The family gets a telegram. But his family refuses to stop looking for him, and they even set up posters. They're putting him as a missing person because, in truth, his family is refusing to believe that he ran away. They follow up on every lead that came their way. Anything that came from any of the flyers they pulled, they put out there uh, asking for information on him. Part of them was also fear that he was dead somewhere because there was no other way that they could figure out that he would just dropped off the face of the earth. They pray that he's going to come back. Now, fast forward 14 years and this skeleton has been found in the crawl space of the house where he used to live at. Homicide detectives are looking that this skeleton indeed does belong to the missing teen. A coroner did confirm his identity through the dental work that it was Christopher DeNoyer. He had finally been found. It seemed that he was murdered by multiple gunshot wounds and then buried underneath the kitchen floor. He was at least shot once uh, to the back of the head. Well, it was a total of three and there was a great amount of damage to the skull. So police ask themselves who will go to the trouble, not only of killing him, but putting him where they did. And they're thinking this was a person that's cold-blooded, but also angry, very angry. So they're looking at any other clues that they could come across. They sift through the whole area and they found a large caliber, a deformed bullet in there. Uh, the bullet was sent for analysis and it was matched. It was a six inch 357 Magnum. Now they can connect this to an actual gun. And of course, it's now considered an active homicide. Of course, by now the police realize whoever put that body there had to have access to that crawl space for some length of time in order to put the body there. More than likely somebody that lived there knew definitely that there was something amiss and was able to act like if everything was normal. The police are realizing that Christopher was a big kid, had to have some type of strength to put the body in there 
under the crawl space, whether it was the family member or somebody who knew the family to actually carry that out. So the police go to see his girlfriend. Many years have gone by and she thought he ran away and she's very distraught. She was so distraught because she considered him her first love. All this time, she realizes he had not forgotten about her. He had not abandoned her. He had not turned his back on her. He had been murdered. So she's describing to the police that this was a tumultuous household that Chris lived in. So the police decide they have to speak to the family members that lived there during this time period when Chris disappeared. They went to see his sister. She was young when he disappeared. She grew up, moved away. One of the detectives went to Ohio to see her. Uh, she broke down because for 14 years, she never knew really what had happened to her older brother. She was the one that told their father the identity of that skeleton was Christopher. And that, he, In other words, he had finally been found. It was as they had suspected for all those years. He had not run away. She tells them basically also how he was killed. Now, his sister's very angry. She tells the police the same thing as Carlotta. It was a chaotic household full of arguments. Stepfather had a bunch of rules. His name was Jackson Villarda. He wanted to make everything be the way he wanted because, of course, he didn't understand that this was a stepson, a high school teenager, which is normal that sometimes kids at that age might be a little bit defiant, but because Villarda was the way he was. It made it much worse than it actually had to be. The sister's telling the police that during that time period, because they're asking about an odor, and the parents are telling her that a pet snake had gotten out, and this is what was causing that smell. And of course, what the police now realize is that the family was living there while he was under there. Now they're wondering, did they really believe that it was an animal that had gone there was causing that smell? Or if they Either one of them actually truly knew that it was Chris that had been placed there. Of course, everything points to the stepfather and the mother. Could it be possible that Chris's mom loves her new husband so much that he, she's willing to take his side against her own son? That's the question that police are asking themselves right about now. They bring first in Chris's mother's Dale just to gauge her reaction. They confirm to her that this is his body. She was very upset. She thought, she believed that he was still alive. She tells the same story as the sister had said about the fights between Chris and his stepdad. He just had really strong rules and of course this caused a lot of friction between the teenager and the stepdad. And again they ask how they explain the rotting smell in the house. She says that a pet snake had gotten out of its cage and somewhere in the house it died and the decomposition was what was causing the smell. Police are thinking this is extremely strange. And she's saying police that she never gave up hope of finding her son because she's thinking maybe one day she's gonna find out he's been sighted somewhere. She's saying that she can't believe that her husband is involved in it somehow. So that basically that leaves the police right at the beginning. They contact Chris's stepdad at work and he agrees to come in for an interview. He just says, I saw him walk out of the house and I never saw him again. Basically, he admits that they didn't get along. He says that it's mostly Chris's fault, that he was defiant, that he didn't want to follow any of the rules, and that uh, he, he tried to get along with him. Then they break the news to him and they tell him that uh, basically he was executed and buried. And the police are kind of a little bit surprised at how calm he is because he then develops a lack of memory. He can't even recall smelling, smelling anything strange, any weird odor from a uh, body that weighs about 160 pounds. 
Three hours into the interview, they point the finger at him. They're realizing he's a very cool person. He was very calm when he's being questioned by the police. This makes them realize that he very easily could have killed Chris, buried him, and acted around the family like nothing was wrong or that he had done nothing wrong. They realize that this family has kept all of their correspondence for the last 14 years, even phone bills, boxes and boxes of it, and they start going through it. And they find that supposed telegram sent by Chris. But this telegram is being charged to their phone bill, which means somebody at the house called the telegram office. This is where it originated from. This really didn't correspond with Chris being somewhere else and sending that telegram. Amongst the things there, they located 357 Magnum, and it turns out to be Jackson's gun, also boxes of ammunition. The guns and ammunition are sent immediately off to be tested. In the meantime, Dale and Jackson Villarta are free to go. The police are realizing that this evidence is going to point either to one or both of them as being the perpetrators. And it turns out there's even a match between the bullets that were used to kill Chris and the bullets that were found, the unused bullets that were found in those boxes. And again, they realize this had to be somebody strong enough to drag the body down into that crawl space. The motive is Villard is not getting along with Christopher. They're having constant arguments and he sees it as a challenge to his authority. The investigators, they decide that they're going to arrest Villarda for the murder of Chris Denoyer. They stop him while he's in his work van. They're ordering him at gunpoint to walk back to where they're at. He does so, but then he opens the back door of his work van and he steps inside of it. They have no idea what he's going to do. They don't know, is he gonna pull out a gun? What is he going to do as far as uh, facing this arrest? And when he comes out, he's got uh, an orange traffic cone, which he places behind the van. He says that the company requires him to do this, so he's, he's worrying about the safety rules for his company and being in compliance with them. They arrest him. The police are wondering of all the things that he would be worried about. He's thinking about being in compliance with his employer's rules. They, uh, they arrest him and they book him. And they're realizing that for so many years, he was having breakfast and eating in that dining room over Christopher's body. They're realizing that indeed he was a very cold-blooded individual. In May of 1999, 15 years after the crime, Jackson goes to court, faces the charge, and it turns out that he had a very strange relationship with Christopher, and one day he decides to murder him and bury him under the house. And it seemed he chose that day that Dale Viarta was gone with the kids. Maybe even the fight might have started over the death of his of his dogs that had gotten into the rat poison. So there's a possibility that Viarta even killed the dogs, which was something that would have probably sent a very bad situation into something much, much worse. At this point, they're realizing Viarta is not going to get into a physical altercation with a teenager who's a football player. So he uses a firearm instead, and he probably came up from behind and shot him. Now, once that was done, he has to figure out how to cover up this crime. So whatever items were covered with blood, he, of course, even though he's a slight man, he basically drags him into that crawl space under the house. And then the course of the trial accuse him, Jackson, of sending that telegram. And then, of course, the snake story to tell the kids why there's that strange smell. For 14 years, it worked until the discovery of the body. Now, the prosecutors are confident they've made their case. Their jury comes back within a few hours with a verdict, and uh, they did not cast a vote for guilt. So it ended in a mistrial. All the families and friends 
they're confused how could this have ended in a mistrial considering all the evidence that was there and they're all wondering did Viarta get away with murder eight months later he stands at a new murder trial he was found guilty of second degree murder sentenced to get 17 years to life and it turns out that Dale his mom who is thinking that her son is still alive and waiting for him to show up is not only is he dead but she's betrayed by the man she's married to. Uh, Villarta was convicted of the secondary murder in 2000 and he was eligible for parole. He was denied in 2009 and in 2016 he was up for parole in August of 2021. It's unknown if they granted it to him. Within a few months of the disappearance of Christopher DeNoyer, which later turned out to be his murder, another story made a California newspaper and it started out this way. Uh, Sheriff's Lieutenant by the name of Gary Vance was called out to a location out in Baldwin, an area of Los Angeles, and it involved a partially buried skeleton that had been discovered in this crawl space beneath the house. Within minutes, he was on his way to what he called one of the strangest cases of his career. Now, at the scene, uh, the detective found a skeleton clothed in shirt, a denim jeans, and tennis shoes. Now, only a sneaker foot with the bone inside protruded from the sandy soil. The skeleton had been discovered earlier in the day by a workman who was cleaning up after helping refurbish the house. Within hours, uh, detectives canvassed the neighborhood, interviewed people living in that area, and also made a check of local police and dental records. And also with the help of a forensic anthropologist, a few hours. The skeleton was identified as the remains of 14-year-old James David Gilmore, whose family once lived in the house and reported his disappearance 23 years before in 1962. The detective, who heads a 13-member sheriff's homicide team back then, uh, immediately designated the case as a possible homicide, just based on a simple theory which meant dead people can't bury themselves. But after six weeks and hundreds of hours of investigation, the case still remained unsolved. Investigators had very little evidence. Even the cause of death was being kept a secret so it could be used during polygraph questioning of possible suspects. The detective in charge of the investigation admitted that because of the time period of 23 years it had passed, it sent up a lot of different obstacles as far as physical evidence, no fingerprints or anything like that. The policeman who handled the original missing persons report for the Baldwin Park Police Department is dead and his notes on the case are gone. Investigators said that a potential key witness, which was James Older, half-sister Linda, was killed in San Francisco in 1979. Her husband was subsequently convicted of the crime. Other witnesses, including acquaintances and playmates of the dead boy, have left the area. And surviving family members, their memories perhaps clouded by the passage of time, have given conflicting accounts to the detectives. Now, longtime residents said that it used to be a working class neighborhood and around the time the Gilmores lived there, it was a 1920s vintage house on the 1200 block of Bess Avenue in Baldwin Park that has changed since those days when James disappeared in 1962. At that time, the area was dotted with truck farms and horse barns. Today, the rural flavor is gone. The smell and roar of traffic from the nearby San Gabriel River Freeway Interstate 605 fill the air and broken beer bottles litter the sidewalks. James' mother, Donna Jean Gilmore, 
told investigators that on the night her son disappeared, which was January 7, 1962, she went to visit friends about 7.30 p.m., and she left James to watch television with his sister Linda and his younger brother Wayne, who was 13. Sometime later, she told investigators there was a knock on the door, and she said James got up and then got dressed and told his brother and sister that he had to go out, and he was never seen alive again. Now, uh, Donna Gilmore refused to be interviewed further for the story, uh, but she was separated during those days from her husband. Since then, she divorced him and moved on to San Diego. She told uh, newspapers since the time of the discovery under the crawl space that she reported James missing the next day. She said, you've got to remember, it's been a long time. She also said James had never been in serious trouble and that he had been expected to return. Later on, however, uh, it was discussed that apparently Mrs. Gilmore waited three days instead of one to report her son missing. The brother Wayne, who's 36 at the time of the discovery in 1985, told a totally different story. He's quoted saying, if I remember correctly, my sister wasn't home that night, just me and him. He was already dressed. He'd been going in and out of the house all night because he had a new puppy he was taking care of in the barn. He went out the last time and didn't come back. Wayne who investigators said passed a polygraph test, said his brother did not get along with him or anyone else in the family. He said that James was the neighborhood bully who terrorized younger children and hung around with older, tougher boys, including guys who were in a motorcycle gang. He said he used to beat me up just to keep in practice. There was a feeling of relief when he wasn't around. Mike Whitehead, a boyhood friend of Wayne, who lived across the street, said, Jimmy was a pain in the butt most of the time. He was the Eddie Haskell of the neighborhood. Wayne Gilmore said that despite his brother's behavior, James was afraid of the dark and was the only Gilmore child who had not run away. He said, my mother was asleep most of the day and worked at night, and the kids had more or less free reign. He said, we took off when we wanted, and we came back when we wanted. Jimmy stuck pretty close to home, especially at night. People who knew him well thought he was dead. People thought someone would do him under. And even five and six years later, people would ask me what I thought. I thought about him a lot in the earlier years. I searched some old trunks in the barn for his body. Always in the back of my mind, I thought that one of these days, he would be back. He would pop up somewhere. I didn't really figure he'd pop up under the house. Neighbors and family members recall that Donna Gilmore and her former husband, also named James, often argued and more than once fired guns at each other. Wayne Gilmore said, The police were called to the house frequently. When we said our name was Gilmore, they didn't even ask the address. It wasn't no leave-it-to-beaver type home. It was a madhouse. There were four or five shooting incidents. Among the questions in the case that continue to puzzle the detectives is why if the body was buried only a foot deep, no one smelled the odor of decomposing flesh. However, the police said it is a possibility that no one noticed the smell because the body was buried in a ventilated crawl space and the yard contained the stench of chickens and other animals. Meanwhile, the Sheriff's Department, which is handling the case at the request of the Baldwin Park Police Department, continued its investigations. The boy's father, who now lives in the Mojave Desert area, was interviewed and the detectives planned to talk with his older half-brother, Richard Gilmore, who also lives in San Diego. Reportedly, neither Richard Gilmore nor the father were at home that night. Within a few months of the discovery of James' body, a pair of detectives were left to investigate the 23-year-old murder. And even after several months of investigating, interviewing more people, 
they had not come up with any other clues except what they had already been told. That he was described by family and friends as a neighborhood bully. He was described as being overbearing. He was described as being divisive and ruthless and manipulative. He wasn't well liked, even within his family. His brother Wayne reiterated, he wasn't the nicest person to know. He didn't have friends. He had people that he blackmailed. He threatened to beat them up. He was aggressive and he was cruel. The detectives interviewed everyone they could find who knew the boy and certain details puzzled the investigators. They wondered why none of James' brothers or sisters bothered to see who was at the door that night he vanished. They also wondered why the boy's body was buried underneath his home. In the end, this case remained unsolved as to who killed James Gilmore and buried him under the crawl space of the house they lived in. For some reason, during the 1980s, crawl spaces under houses seemed to be a favorite place to stash bodies. In June of 1984, this happened in Tampa, Florida. The skeletal remains of a body were being dug up from their hiding place by police who crawled under a house on East Osborne Avenue. The grim discovery came after investigators said they learned the week before from a confidential informant that the body could be found in the makeshift grave. The medical examiner was called to the scene and tentatively identified the remains as human, but police said the sex of the skeleton had not been determined. The remains were totally decomposed and had been there for quite some times. Law enforcement officials from FDLE from their crime lab began to unearth the bones from what appeared to be an enclosed porch at the front of a small wood frame house at 1225 East Osborne Avenue. Some residents of the quiet Nebraska Heights neighborhood stood for hours along the tree-lined street to look at law enforcement do their work. One woman was quoted saying, I was shocked. I don't know anything, said another woman. Most of them described that they mind their own business. One of the police officers said the tenants in the house knew absolutely nothing about the bones. However, he would not identify who actually owned the house. Within a week of the discovery, authorities were able to identify the remains as that of 16-year-old Lisa Leah Dakar. The teenager was reported last year as a runaway by her mother, Barbara Jean Dakar. She was reported missing about 5.30 p.m. on March 24, 1983. That's when she failed to return home to the East Osborne Avenue, where she lived and where her body was found. Police said there have been no arrests in the case, which they now are considering as a homicide case. The cause of the girl's death remained undetermined. They did help to identify the body through a diamond ring and a pair of gold cross earrings, which were found with the bones. The residents of the area said they knew very little about the people who in March of the year previous to that were renting the house where the body was found. A woman one doorway said she had been given the girl's dog after she supposedly ran away. Upon the discovery of Lisa Dakar's body, the Hillsborough Sheriff's investigators continued their search for clues in the deaths of three women whose bodies were found in eastern parts of the county within the past month. The first two victims were said by the sheriff to be linked because of striking similarities in the cases. And the third victim, which was found the previous Saturday in a ditch in Riverview, remained unidentified. And at this point, it makes you think that the police were fearing that they might have a serial killer on their hands. A neighbor who lived close by, her name was Mrs. Lee, said that her granddaughter played with Lisa and her younger brother during the short time they lived in the house. She said they seemed to be pretty friendly. She said that Barbara DeCar's boyfriend also lived there. Mrs. Lee said that although she did not know the group well, they seemed to be all right. Then one day, Mrs. Lee recalled Mrs. Dakar announced that Lisa had left home with another girl. She said she just came out there to the woodpile and told us she'd run away. 
Mrs. Dekar mentioned that the other girl's name was, but Mrs. Lee couldn't recall it at that time. The Dekars only lived in the house about two months the previous spring and moved out before summer without a word. That didn't seem unusual because several other families had moved in and out of that house. Police said Miss Dekar still lived in Tampa, but would not say where. Nathaniel Horn, who bought the house last November, returned home June 5th to find police standing outside. They had gotten that tip that there were some bones under the house. And from there, the homicide investigation started. Within three months of the discovery of the body, in September of 1984, a 27-year-old Tampa man was being held in jail for allegedly kidnapping and raping two convenience store clerks and was charged Friday with killing his girlfriend's 16-year-old daughter. Her name was Lisa Dakar. His name was Wayne Tompkins, and he was accused of murdering the young girl whose skeletal remains were dug up from under the East Osborne Avenue house. He was the one that lived there with Barbara Dakar and her three children. The Tampa police refused to reveal at that time a motive for the killing or the cause of the death, saying that the release of that information could jeopardize their case. It's still an active, ongoing investigation, which leads one to believe that maybe they thought there might have been someone else involved. In an affidavit where Tompkins was charged with first-degree murder, it stated that he admitted to a confidential informant that he killed and buried Lisa Dakar under the house that they lived in. The affidavit stated that at 9 a.m. on March 24, 1983, Barbara Dakar left Lisa Dakar and Tompkins alone in their former residence at 1225 East Osborne Avenue. At 3 p.m. that day, Tompkins told Barbara Dakar that Lisa had run away and would not return, and this is according to the affidavit. More than 14 months later, the young girl's body was discovered in a shallow grave under the house, wearing the same pink robe she had on the last day she was seen. A diamond ring and other pieces of jewelry were also found, cementing her identification. At that time, it took the police about 10 hours to excavate her from underneath the enclosed porch. Barbara Dakar, her mother, who had reported her daughter missing on that same day, could not be reached for comment. One of the detectives in charge of the case said that the police learned that a body was under the house from a missing children's agency called Child Search of Tampa. The founder of that group said Friday that he and another agency official decided to search around the car's residence after psychics drove by the house and said something happened at the house. The founder in the group and another agency official slid their hands beneath an opening in the base of the porch and felt the ground give way. He stuck his hand in again and pulled out what looked to be a part of a human bone. At that point, the agency called the police department. Tompkins, the accused, was a roofer and a cook, and he began living with Barbara Dakar and her children in 1981. He continued to live with her and her two sons at several residences until he was arrested in Pasco County in May. At that time, Tompkins was charged with abducting at knife point a 29-year-old convenience store clerk in Lutz, raping her and dropping her off at another convenience store in Lando Lakes. The next day, he was charged in connection with a knife point abduction and rape of a 26-year-old Odessa convenience store clerk in April. He had not been brought to trial in any of those cases. Court records also showed that Tompkins was arrested in January and charged with selling alcohol to a minor. The charge stemmed from the sale of a can of beer to a 16-year-old boy at US 301 in Buffalo Avenue. At that time, he was just fined $30. Two months later in November, the case 
against Wayne Thompson was substantially weakened by the suicide of a young man who was the state's key witness. His name was Brian Mark Duncan, and he poisoned himself in a Dade City motel the week before, and he had given the investigators information needed to charge Wayne Tompkins in the killing of Lisa Dakar. Tompkins was charged on September 14th with first-degree murder for allegedly killing Lisa and burying her body beneath the house. Tompkins allegedly told Duncan about the killing while the two were in jail together in Pasco County. Duncan was only 21 years old and he poisoned himself on October 26, just when Pasco County deputies were about to arrest him on a theft charge. He died Wednesdays, five days after he swallowed cyanide tablets. Duncan's death shocked many residents who remembered him as a brilliant, ambitious student who graduated from community college and co-authored a book by the age of 18. But his families and friends says he had become increasingly despondent in recent months and had committed such crimes as passing bad checks and stealing a car. They said he was afraid he would have to return to jail and face prisoners who knew about his cooperation with prosecutors. The state's case against Tompkins was substantially hurt by this. The evidence against him at that particular time was totally circumstantial. Whether it was strong enough to get the jury was going to be up to the judge. By this time, the story had changed a little bit as to how Lisa's body was discovered. Supposedly, Barbara Dakar, her mother, consulted a psychic who told her that he saw Lisa Dakar under a house. Officials then began digging under it, and in June is when they unearthed the girl's skeleton. While the skeleton was unearthed, Tompkins was jailed in an unrelated case. In January of 1985, Tompkins was charged with 20 years in the state prison. He had been charged with kidnapping, sexual battery, and armed robbery for an incident that took place on April 7, 1984, where it occurred at a quick trip convenience store on County Road 54 in Odessa. It's now September of 1985, and two years before, Lisa Leah Dakar, who was 15 at the time, begged her mother not to get back together with her boyfriend, Wayne Tompkins. But the man moved in with Barbara and her children, and the following month, he killed Lisa and buried her under the house. The story unfolded in the courtroom, and the prosecutor told the jury that apparently the murder had occurred because Lisa had resisted Tompkins' sexual advances. He used the sash from her bathrobe to strangle her. He then told the mother that the daughter had run away. The most damaging testimony against Tompkins came from three witnesses. The first one was Kathy Stevens, one of Lisa's friends. She would testify that she saw Tompkins trying to kiss and fondle Lisa that same day and that Lisa was struggling and yelled for her to call the police. However, she didn't. Stevens also told the jury that Lisa fought him off on an earlier occasion and that he had threatened to kill both of them. Then another one is named Kenneth Turco, who was Tompkins' cellmate. He would tell the jury that four months ago, Tompkins told him he had killed Lisa. At this time, Tompkins was serving 28 years for the unrelated rapes of two convenience store clerks. And lastly, Barbara Dakar testified that Tompkins had told her he last saw Lisa leaving the house in jeans and a burgundy shirt that same day she disappeared. But the clothes weren't missing. Only her pink bathrobe was gone, which is what the girl was wearing when her body was unearthed under the house. On September 19th, the judge sentenced Wayne Tompkins, who was 28 at the time, to death after a 12-member jury recommended that penalty by a unanimous vote. This meant that he was to die in Florida's electric chair. They had deliberated only two and a half hours on the first-degree murder charge. In December of 1986, the Florida Supreme Court 
that stand a death sentence imposed on Wayne Tompkins after he appealed the sentencing uh, to be put to death at the electric chair. By June of 1987, the U.S. Supreme Court also denied an appeal from Wayne Tompkins regarding his death sentence for strangling Lisa Dakar. By 1988, Tompkins' defense, their next move was to ask for clemency from the then governor of Florida, Bob Martinez. Clemency was never granted and he was slated to be executed on June 6, 1989 at 7 a.m. Three days before his execution, he was granted a stay. However, by September of 1989, the Florida Supreme Court lifted the stay of execution and denied an appeal by Tompkins. In November of that same year, Governor Bob Martinez went ahead and signed a death warrant. In December of 1989, Tompkins again seemed to escape execution when a federal judge issued an indefinite stay of execution where he was at that moment scheduled to die in the electric chair. In 2001, another Florida governor, Jeb Bush, signed another death warrant against Wayne Tompkins, who was now at this time 43 years old. It wasn't until February of 2009 that was put to death by lethal injection at the Florida State Prison in Stark. And one only has to wonder, why did it take 26 years to put to death a man who was a rapist and a murderer? But the good thing is, ultimately, justice was served, not only for Lisa, but for society at large.